real quick. Before we begin, I wanted to give you a quick heads up that we had some minor audio mixing issues. There was some inadvertent noise canceling between Dylan and Chris that was eliminating their audio track in odd ways. I did the best I could to eliminate as much of it as I could. Unfortunately, it's still sticking around a bit. So I apologize in advance for the subpar audio quality. It's uh, not generally what I like to release to the public, but given things the way they are, I feel like we did all right. So without further ado, let's start the program. I'm really pumped about this episode. I'll, I'll, I'll forewarn you now. Um, it's going to be exciting. So I'm, I'm a finance major or was a finance major. I'm finally graduated. Um, focusing on IB side. So I'm super pumped to start talking about, you know, exits and especially like prepping a business for an exit, I find very valuable. Um, so I'm not obviously like in IB, I run a SaaS company now, um, in the, in the Amazon space. So it's, it's going to be fun. I'm like, <laughs> we're going to geek out super hard if you're cool with that. Yeah, no, I think it's great. I'm, I'm, I'm so, you know, just to give you some context about us and our firm, um, I, I run business development, marketing, uh, data analytics for the firm. You know, my background is from consumer products, but I was a sales and marketing executive for over well over 15 years for various, uh, juvenile product and toy companies. Um, I pivoted away and I actually, I actually became just a, just a student of both digital marketing and Amazon seller central back in around 2014 when I knew that, Hey, the way of the Buffalo is going this way. But my three partners all came from, very large institutional investment banks. So they worked at B of A, they worked at Well Securities, Citibank, Deutsche Bank. Um, Jason, his last stint was with Bayview Asset Management, and it was a $11 billion hedge fund, and he ran capital markets for them. So, uh, you know, I, I've been in this for about three years now, and I've been working with these guys, obviously, for about three. I worked for a company that also um, was owned by private equity. So I'm just familiar with the. <laughs> The tenacity and ferociousness of private equity and how bad it can be to work under them. And sometimes it's good, just depending on the partner. Um, but you can throw it. What I'm trying to tell you is you can throw any question my way. Um, you know, I, I'll answer I'll answer anything um, and, and I'll give you a, a good answer, especially about this part of the capital market. So cool. I appreciate that. So actually, a lot of my direct fascination is private equity, especially like boutique style private equity. Um, and actually, we interviewed a guy. Stephen Pope um, yesterday, um, so he, he's on the previous episode, and he he more so is on the consulting kind of services side. So he's he's starting to be brought in to help on the due diligence side of deals. And what's funny is I've, I've been projecting the fact that we will start to have small PE firms come into the Amazon space specifically. There's great brands being built, um, and especially doing rollups. I mean, rollups seem to be a beautiful model for the Amazon space. I mean, you have tons of small brands. You can do a nice little rollup in a, in a specific category or niche, um, go from, you know, Amazon to brick and mortar from brick and mortar to Amazon, whatever kind of special, you know, strategy you want to take in the PE side. Um, and he's like, yeah, we're starting to actually see those deals and he's starting to kind of get involved in some of those things, at least on the due diligence side. So I'm curious, you know, how, how has the last, and correct me on the time frame, but let's say the last like two to three years been on on the the acquisition and kind of exit side of this space. Yeah, I mean it's been it's growing and it's growing pretty quickly. Um, I just actually read a McKinsey stat this morning that um, in ninety days we just fast forwarded e commerce by ten years. 
So this isn't just somebody coming up with some, you know, random stat. It was McKinsey analyzing B of A, Forest, uh, Forrester Analytics, um, and the uh, United States Department of Commerce, um, all their data, and pretty much coming to the conclusion that we just fast-forwarded e-commerce. Um, now, what that's doing is, you know, you saw over the past, call it, you know, three, two to three years using that time frame, um, you saw more people interested in this space. Amazon brings a lot of risk. And because and it, it, it's it's all over the newspapers all the time. And, you know, you read about it all the time in terms of what they're not necessarily doing right, what they're doing wrong. And so because of that, a lot of I would saw I would say a lot of uh, a timid approach has been has been taken to Amazon. You know, what's also interesting, too, is um, you're starting to finally see a little bit of multiple expansion. You know, unfortunately, this part of the capital markets has been, um, and I will say it, littered with business brokers and traditional conventional business brokers. And because of that, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Brokers don't know how to go out and present a company with a good opportunity, showing real performers, not junk performers. Um, you know, real performer, real opportunity runway. They instead go out with a price, and that price has been a traditional just this is the multiple and everyone knows I just negotiate down from there. I don't ever negotiate up. And so because of, I would say our firm has been pioneering in going out and taking deals to market where there isn't a multiple applied. We're taking it to large firms, mid cap, even some micro funds. These are big boys. They do their own big boy valuations. Uh, And so because of that, we're starting to see some multiple expansion uh, as well. But to answer your question directly, yeah, we saw some really nice, you know, call it just uh, lift over the past two to three years. But this past few months, man, it has been an absolute pop. We've lost count of the new investment faces. I mean, we, we're getting calls after calls after calls of guys who are looking for deal flow specifically within digital assets. They're looking for SaaS. They're looking for IoT. They're looking for IT support. They're looking for cloud management. They're looking for digital agencies, by the way. They're looking for Amazon-based businesses. They're looking for e-commerce, omni-channel. They're looking for these things because of basically COVID caught them with their pants down, you know, in a candid way, right? And so they realized they were over-levered with traditional business and brick and mortar, and they needed to start looking at their or their funds and go, all right, the dry powder is here, right? There's plenty of it. In fact, that didn't change because of COVID, there's still a trillion dollars worth of dry powder to buy companies. And now what you're seeing is just a reallocation into a new asset class. Right. Because it's easy to feel diversified until the actual economic climate completely shifts. And you're like, wait a second, 10% of our portfolio was actually held in e-commerce. Okay. That's a problem. Um, Talk about not being anti-fragile, right? Yeah, Uh, But I agree. And, And we've been saying, you know, money is cheap right now. Like capital is very cheap right now. Right. Um, you're not seeing, at least from what I've seen, a lot of like institutional, like you mentioned, you know, mid cap, some small uh, micro cap coming coming into into the space. You know, you're not going to see like institutional based kind of money coming in quite yet. Um, not but yet. yeah, I, it's, not yeah, yet, not, but it's starting. It's starting to the thing. It's exactly. starting to kind of just a little bit kind of look start to eye this start part of the capital markets. Sure. Um, I'm curious. Okay. So, so multiples are starting to increase and I've been watching deals, you know, I've, I've yet to acquire a company, but it's something I've always wanted to do. So I, I keep 
kind of a finger on the pulse as to like what multiples we're seeing and stuff like that. And I agree, it's typically here's revenue, here's a multiple, end of discussion. Like that's not a valuation, by the way. That's not <laughs> like, a valuation. That's a that's a listing. That's a that's an that's email. It. That's really exactly. Weird. And so, you know, a lot of my academic career, especially like um, senior year was focused on, you know, financial modeling, doing actual, you know, we would do some private, it was mainly focusing on public um, securities. So we would do actual company valuations, looking at K- K-10s and stuff like that. And so you look at the level of assumptions built into an actual company valuation, and then you see the simplicity of some of these listings. And you're like, listen, <laughs> like that's not how this works at all. Because if you're trying to look at, the actual, you know, cash on cash returns and stuff like that, you know, it, it just, it doesn't work. If you don't, if you're not, if you can't tell me what risk-free rate you're choosing and why I'm already kind of off the table because <laughs> it's just, it's too simplistic for something. Um, especially if you're looking at a decent sized deal, I'm not even talking like a massive deal, right? If you're talking like a six figure deal, you still need to be looking at stuff like this because you're measuring actual risk. You should be. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, look, you know, most most call it in the in the private equity, corporate strategics, uh, family office world. Those are really the three buckets we play in the most. Um, you know, the reality is there anything less than pretty much two to three million in EBITDA, they're just going to consider small anyway. So once you start get, getting into three million EBITDA, you start to get into some real complexities that require looking at the business in, in a couple different ways. You know, with consumer products, when you've got a COGS component involved, typically it's almost always EBITDA. But we just recently sold a SaaS business, and it was a it was an eight-figure SaaS business that we sold. Um, you know, we, we pushed it out. You'll never see anything on our website. You know, we have a couple listings on Biz by Sell, some of our lower seven-figure deals, and those are actually starting to – we're starting to really go more upstream just because our process is – it fits something a bit more sophisticated and professional, but you won't see any of that. And we just shop that around to, to some private equity, corporate strategics. And the ultimate acquire was a, um, it was actually a Silicon Valley head. Uh, you would know him if I said his name. Uh, he started a family office and he purchased and, uh, and he hired a guy. I don't know. He wasn't from Blackstone, but he was from, he was from some firm that you would, you would recognize. And, you know, on that deal in particular, they did they did three different ways of evaluation. They did EBITDA valuation, they did a revenue multiple, and they also did a discounted cash flow model. Um, but you know what? We had to provide a lot of data, and the data had to be correct. And it took them time to go through exactly the not only is it just valuation, but also looking at all sides of 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 the of the business and going, well, what is how is structure now going to be affected by this too, right? So, so yeah, it's um, but yeah, so so that's that's kind of how these guys are are looking at things, and that's that's a, that's a professional valuation. That's not just a yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, to, to understand one, how a DCF works and two, how to do one, <laughs> like I took an entire semester where and it was like grad level where that's pretty much like textbook one, Excel Bible, 2019, <laughs> textbook two, financial valuations, DCF models. You know, it's it's so it's so intricate. You know, it makes sense once, once you're kind of in the thick of it and doing it. But but there are multiple valuation methods there is no one that works and there's built-in assumptions and and a lot of these firms you know especially like the pe style when they're doing their valuations most of the time from what i understand they're not actually sharing some of uh their their assumptions because that's kind of like their ip to a certain degree you know it's like hey here's how we do it 
but we're not going to give you everything. And everybody, <laughs> you know? It's exactly right. And everyone's going to look at the world a little bit differently. So, you know, we have a deal right now where um, it's sold to private equity, but it's actually a roll up. And so the valuation on that was a bit heavier um, because they were actually looking not necessarily at EBITDA per se. They were looking more at the contribution margin once the roll up occurs. And so, you know, everybody kind of looks at the world differently. That's why a strategic deal is always going to get a fetch a higher valuation because they're not necessarily kind of going down the waterfall. They're going to stay up top and they're going to look really at either contribution margin or in some cases just gross margin because they're able to put it into an engine. So, you know, when you take a deal to the M&A team at Home Depot or Lowe's or, you know, P&G, again, these guys aren't doing deals all the time. But when you take something there that fits their model, well, you know, they're not some fund that goes, okay, well, I got to put a portfolio manager on it and it's going to need X amount of injection of working capital. And I got to start thinking about this type of infrastructure. It's like, no, all that's done. Now you're just taking this beautiful brand and you're getting rid of a lot of overhead costs, basically. So they're willing to pay more for that because they know that from an accretive perspective, they're going to see, you know, really, they're going to see gains right away. Yeah, that make, and that makes sense. Um, yeah, this is stuff I, I dream about. So this conversation is like hitting my sweet spot. This is great. <laughs> okay, so so another question here. Um, you know, it's easy for a finance major or really anybody who's initially getting into considering like M&A kind of stuff, just even small acquisitions. And you mentioned, you know, that $3 million EBITDA, that's kind of like a threshold for some of your your decent sized firms, which totally makes sense, right? They're not going to do a ton of like small deals and there's a lot of inherent risk in actually being small. So like there's a size premium and stuff that gets baked into a, a valuation. Um, but it seems like for, for an individual, I've always had this idea of building like a micro PE boutique fund <laughs> where it's like it's a $3 million max fund, maybe five. And, and we go in that sweet spot where like, you know, mid cap is not really going to touch it. And, you know, it's, it's not so small that it does not have a team and processes. It's not established. So there seems to be a sweet spot for acquisitions. Um, but I'm curious as to what you've seen in terms of the actual deal structure. So you have a lot, right? It's easy to, to, to fantasize about the, the, the late 80s, like LBO models that I, I believe it was BlackRock that was really, you know, pushed that. Um, and yeah, and leave it out, of course. Um, <laughs> there's, there's a few in there. That are yeah that are really um, that that push that model and and it makes sense when you look at the math on it but you don't look at the realities of it so I'm curious to see like what what models because again capital is cheap right now it, LBOs and LBO meaning just leverage buyout meaning you're gonna actually take on debt for the company in the company's name to let's say I'm gonna buy a company for a million dollars I'm gonna put two hundred grand so twenty percent cash down privately. And then raise money from either an external investor, you know, maybe a hedge fund. It it, it, it kind of ranges there. Yeah, you're um, just going to push a company versus your own firm. Exactly, yeah. you're going to hold it for a three to five year period, depending on like the agreement there, and then exit it. But you have full ownership. Great. Um, what are you seeing though in terms of deal structure right now? I mean, on the small side, deal structure is pretty straightforward. It's pretty easy. It's it's a full it's full full buyout. Is really really okay. Thinking. Yeah, you know the SBA loan is still very very much uh, alive and active. Um, I'd say call it below five million in enterprise value. Um, so they'll let you uh, SBA will let you take out a loan up to five million. Typically, depending on you know depending on your own personal risk, they require anywhere between ten to twenty percent down. Um, it's a bit of an arduous process. It's not the best process to go through, but at the same time, you know it's a government wrapped loan, so. 
Um, you know, you basically, you know, it's, it's kind of the same type of structure. You're just, you know, but it's all your own personal and you're doing a lot of personal guarantee too. Yeah. That's what, that's what I was going to ask is, is it a lot of personal liability? It's a lot of personal liability. Like, like the beautiful years. thing of an LBO when you can raise the debt on the company entity and like, listen, if it goes to shit, like personally, I'm fine. Like, and you don't want that, but, but you do want some, some personal protection there. Right. I mean, Nobody at, at 28 wants to raise, you know, half a million to a million dollars of debt and be like, cool, I'm liable for this. Hopefully it goes well. <laughs> so, I mean, that's kind of, you know, the other the other side I see is if, you know, you if you have a fund um, and it's a it's a fund that you built up to call it a three million micro cap and you're able to um, really all that does is give you a lot of creative latitude in terms of how you want to create the deal structure. So. Um, not one size fits all. So for instance, some, some folks will say, Hey, look, I'll, you know, I've got the cash. Um, I want the, I want full control. You know, I want to buy 50% of the company and I want to put, I want to do seller financing for the other 50. Uh, I want to do 80, 20, I want to do 70, 30. I mean, some of it too is also then dependent on your and tip all always in the, I would say in the main street, which is the six figure, lower seven figure, definitely in the six figure. It depends on your skill set. I mean, you're a SaaS guy. So if you see a SaaS business that's, you know, three to $400,000 and you're able to, you know, go into, you know, you're always doing extra work, whether it's being represented by a broker or it's just being represented on a Flippa or Shopify exchange or, you're always going to do a ton of work and diligence to understand what's really going on. But I mean, you know, you yourself, if you actually did that as, as a SaaS expert and you, you know, kind of dug in, you're going to be able to see the opportunity pretty quickly. And then you're going to place um, value on what you're seeing. And um, others may also do the same thing. So, you know, there might be some demand on the company where you have to get a little bit more, I'd say, creative with that structure and be willing to give a bit more to the seller. But most, most, most is not cash in that world. It is done with SBA. And so if you come in as a micro fund and you focus on that, I think you're actually going to be a little in a little bit of a decent spot, in my opinion. Um, because SBA is a long process. If you have cash, I mean, effectively, you're talking about a business that probably doesn't require a ton of diligence, you know, give me access to X, Y, and Z. Um, let me API some of my own software tools into the business just to run some analytics. If you like what you see, Hey man, great. Let's get the deal docs rolling in, you know, 20 days, 30 days, you can close. There's a lot of value to that. Plus, people like knowing you just have that cash sitting there in proof of funds. So well, it's a quick deal, right? Like if if you think about it, it's easy to think about it from the buyer perspective because you're like, yeah, I want to you know have protections. I want to take my time with it. Like I don't want to put up, up a lot of my own cash. But from the buyer's perspective, you know, when you got two offers and one guy's like, hey, I'm going to get creative with the deal structure here. I want to do seller financing. I want to raise some debt on it. It's going to take time. And then somebody comes in and goes, "Hey, I can close in ninety days with cash, and you can be out the door." It's like, dude, solid win. <laughs> like, and they're going to take less money theoretically too, right? Just because it's done, opportunity costs, right? So, yeah, that makes sense. Um, okay, so in terms of multiples, and obviously it's going to be it's going to be different based on the the type of company, type of business model, the size, all that good stuff. Um, for for a let's say a physical products business that sells on Amazon primarily and and we're going to jump through a few of these because we're not just primarily Amazon here. It's really just business. We just have a lot of background there. Um, let's say in the half a million to a million dollar revenue annual range, what kind of multiples are you guys seeing right now? 
Man, it, it's lower. It's it's fairly low because you're looking at an EBITDA percentage that's healthy of 20% on that. And so let's just assume 200K on the mill. Um, you know, you're just, you're, you're really, you're really up against a lot of listings that are out there at three multiple starting. And, you know, we know, we know for a fact, some aggregator data that's out there. I'm sure you're familiar with the aggregators. Um, the guys who are buying lots of Amazon businesses and have raised lots and lots of capital to do so, which is funny. One of the aggregators is that was actually trying to use an SBA loan. And we were like, dude, what, no, what are you doing? <laughs> right. <laughs> you're not, you're not real. Yeah. Um, <laughs> It's uh, their average multiple is 1.9 to 2.2. Really? That's actually, that's very low. Yeah. So, I mean, that's why when you, you know, we coach a lot of businesses when they come and they say, hey, I've got, um, you know, I've got $500,000 in cash flow. And it's like, man, let's wait. Because if we can get over a mil in cash flow or a mil five or two, we can take you on a real process and get real, I would call them real, you know, sophisticated capital. Yeah, you're not getting cheap buyers, right? You're not getting you're not getting opportunistic buyers that go, you know. It, so you have the emotional buyer, right? Which is like, hey, I've been working in corporate America, I've got a hundred grand cash, I want to be a business owner and buy one. Awesome. The way that person is going to approach a deal is vastly different than somebody's job who is, hey, dude, get deals done, and this is the criteria. It's black or white. Like it either fits our our mold or it doesn't. We can quickly pass or, or say, hey, let's take this to due diligence. Let's issue an LOI today. And and they're not going to beat you down on a multiple. They're not going to beat you down on evaluation because they're not trying to get it for cheap. They're trying to get it at a good value, which is vastly different. In my it's opinion. funny, man. It's funny you say that. I feel like you listen to our conversations in the office. We talk about this all the time. It's, you know, in that world, when someone passes it, you know, you don't go back and say, whoa, 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 whoa. Hey, man, look, why don't we just do it for five multiple versus the six and a half we're really wanting? It doesn't work that way. They're, they're based on a criteria and that's it. It's like, sorry, it's not a fit. Thank you so much. You know, when you have something that looks more like this, we're interested. And we, we get that all the time. And, you know, you there's there's no offense that's taken to it at all, but you're exactly right. There's a lot more, you know, I have conversations with guys a lot who have personal capital, um, sometimes mainly on the podcast circuit that I do. And, you know, the, the, those types, they don't really understand that concept, which is, um, so it's interesting. I'm, I'm glad to speak to someone who does, because they don't understand the concept that, you know, a PE firm or family office, if they pass, they're not looking for a better deal. It's not a negotiation tactic. In fact, we have to coach our sellers on that a lot too, where they're like, they're trying to play this whole, you know, art of the deal, Donald Trump, 1980s type of uh, negotiation with these guys. And we're like, dude, this is not how this works, man. Like you got to really understand when we tell you we're going to go back and we're going to, we're going to probably more, you know, kind of hone in on this lever, but we're not going to touch this lever because if we start messing with this lever over here, it's just a signal to them that we're not real and, you know, we actually don't know what we're doing. So just trust me on this. <laughs> yeah. And, and unfortunately, if you do that too many times, now they don't even want your deal flow. Right. So that hurts you. Right. That's exactly right. It's a reputational thing too. And so we play a lot, we do a lot of blocking and tackling when it comes to that. Stuff. Or we're just like, and that's kind of part of our process too. Before someone, someone comes on and, and we take on an engagement, we let them know very clearly you're not on the telephone we're on the telephone, we're selling your deal, we're, we're actively marketing, we'll get you on the phone when it's needed. And then once we start to really identify the dance partner, we'll start getting some management calls in place. But those are highly coached. 
And then, of course, you know, once the LOI comes, we coach our client throughout the process. You please. Who was it? Was it um, who was the 76ers? Was it the 76ers coach that always said, trust the process? I think it was one. It was some. Oh, coach. Yes. Yeah. Um, I forget his name, but but I know what you're talking about, though. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We, say, we preach the same thing. It's like, just trust the process. It works. It works every time. It's great. It's not flawless, but it's really good. It's very polished. And it yields a great outcome for for every single person that's been through it. And you got to realize too, as, from a, from a buyer's perspective, the person whose desk is getting all these proposals for deals, they're packaged up nicely, right? They get sent over, and they get a, a, a quick once over, right? They're they're looking like we we only touch e commerce businesses between this range, quick filter, right? And then they're they're going a, a layer deeper. But they're seeing so many of these come across their desk. That's how this works. It's a numbers game, right? Like you have multiple people sending you deal flows and you're quickly passing or doing due diligence on it. And so like, you know, to, to just to further illustrate your point of, of it's not about the, the dollar amount. Heck, you, they have a deal that comes up that's literally twice the, the dollar amount in terms of total profit or, or total um, you know, acquisition costs. But if it's a better value... And it makes sense for their for their fund. You know, it's something that is is within their skill set, their resources, their roll up potentially. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of variables that uh, that go into that. And family offices, right? So family offices are actually there to also protect <laughs> the family funds. And so yeah, they're they're going to do a lot of PE style stuff, but but it, they're going to approach it slightly different than a more aggressive PE fund because the inherent risk that when you're investing into that fund is different, right? When you're talking wealth, wealth, um, protection or, you know, just, yeah, just protection over the course of multiple generations, that investment strategy and thought process is vastly different than this fund's existence or life cycle is going to be five to 10 years. It's a bit more methodical. It's a bit slower. Yeah, you're right. There's, there's definitely some, some differences for sure. Um, yeah, I, w- I would definitely agree with that. And two, you know, you mentioned kind of deals coming across the desk, you know, this is where we just look at this world and go, as it's starting to mature, you know, some of the Sims we've seen out there is just, whew, man, it's bad. <laughs> it's really bad. And, and, and you go, it just, it makes us sit back because look, we, we, we feel like we do a really good job and we work really hard. You know, we're a partner firm. We have a support staff, you know, we're heavily invested. We don't have a 1099 network that just, you know, Coldwell Banker, you know, licenses our names, et cetera. So we try and make sure that we stay as humble as possible. But my God, we see some of these other Sims and we're like, you chose that person to represent you. Like you have a great business, a great business. You want to, you want to actually have a great brand and a great business. And you chose this process to sell the largest asset you'll ever potentially own your largest liquidity event. You chose this. And it's like you and that's why we, that's where we do preach a lot, where it's like, look, man, process really does matter. It matters a lot, too. And credibility matters. I mean, look, um, you have an affinity towards this part of the the, the market. Right. And you, you have a strong um, academic background in finance. You know, when you get on the phone with Global Wired, you're talking to someone who spent lots and lots of time in large institutional capital markets and has done very large detailed um, transactions and and also all types of products, bonds, derivatives, um, stocks, public equities, private equities, et cetera, et cetera. 
you know you're you're speaking to someone very credible is what I'm saying. So from a buyer's perspective, they feel really comfortable. I mean, we talked to a fund the other day. Um, it's a family office of uh, it's a it's a well known uh, music star that if I again said their name, you would definitely know who it was. Uh, he hired actually a Blackstone guy, you know, and when he called us, he's it's you know we're speaking the Klingon. He felt very comfortable, and so the deal process just tends to go a lot smoother because they trust the work that we're the work product we're putting out. They trust a lot of the details and data that we're going to give them. It makes a huge difference, and so. I only bring up that point because while we're talking through a lot of just the the details of valuation, et cetera, as your listeners are thinking through an exit, these are the things you have to think through. You know, when someone talks to you and says, yeah, well, I've been doing e-commerce since 2008 and, you know, I'm an entrepreneur myself and et cetera. I think that's really cute. I do. But I also know, yeah, but process matters and background matters. And yeah. Sim looks like, you know, something my son put together. And <laughs> this is not, this is not how this, uh, this is not how this works. You know, it reminds me of the yeah. Geico commercial with the grandma putting the photos on the, on the wall and saying, I want to show you my Facebook. And the lady says, this is not how this works. This is not how any of this works. Sure. Well, and there's, there's a vast difference now that you mention it between the, the traditional biz buy broker that's just in your town and somebody who actually has relationships with family offices, with PE funds, right? If it's, if it's going to be, hey, I'm just a broker and I'm gonna, like, there's a difference in just being a broker. Let's be frank. There's a difference in being a broker and running an actual, um, oh gosh, I'm starting to lose some terminology here. But when you're actually running a playbook, right? When you're actually saying, hey, we're going to do the valuation. Here's some strategic partners we think would be a great fit as a buyer. And they're running lead on that. That is different. They're facilitating a transaction. They're not just saying, I'm going to do some basic valuation. I'm basically going to do a, a EBITDA multiple, and then I'm going to blast it out on, on websites. That's not how you effectively tell a business. You talk about, and we talk to buyers all the time, and, and they tell us they always have to hold their nose when they're looking through the data. And we've actually heard someone say that just like that. And they get it, but they understand that deal flow does exist, and they need to look at it. Um, but we've even seen some massive fuddy duddy stuff where, you know, there's a multiple that's placed on a, a year end pro forma projection that is just so asinine in terms of, you know, passing a sniff test. Right. And, and I don't think these guys understand when they're doing things like this, that they're, they're doing it to try and sell the, the seller on using them. Hey, I'm going to fetch you more money and here's how we do it. The reality is the buying world of the person you really want to buy this company says, I think there's too many Easter bunnies. I'm good. Like this looks too funny to me. You right, know, when you can go through here. and highlight seven different assumptions that are incredibly false in a basic valuation, like, dude, this is a problem, right? And now I have a trust issue. And unfortunately that could have been a fantastic um, transaction, but, but the broker just didn't approach it in a, appropriate manner. Um, and that deal was killed, unfortunately. And, and it doesn't need to be that way. Um, and I, I think my assumption is that a lot of smaller business owners that do want to exit, especially like you have like, you know, the big goal rush right now is a bunch of boomers are retiring. There's a bunch of amazing businesses coming online, a lot of cheap capital. Awesome opportunity, in my opinion. Um, but I, I, I assume that there's a lot of smaller business owners that are intimidated by going the more sophisticated route. Or they think it's going to cost way too much. And I'm sorry, but even though it costs more, I would imagine it does, it's still worth 
the cost. All right, it's paying for admission. Well, and so when when we started our firm, you know, you know, a, a typical middle market. Uh, middle market investment bank ap- approach or engagement is going to look something like, hey, it's a it's a it's a solid engagement fee. It's a solid upfront fee. There's going to be minimums, a minimum fee, no matter what the outcome is. All the expenses are paid for out of pocket. You know, we really wanted to come in and play uh, in that lower middle market, lower middle market within this part of the capital market, and we also are very much aware of that, right? So, you know. Conventional business brokers just take spaghetti, they throw it against the wall, we'll see what sticks. It's a good college try. There's no investment on really their part. There's no investment on the seller's part because they don't have to pay anything. And it's like, I mean, you guys get this. You probably used outsourced 1099 guys in the past where you just get what you pay for, right? And so we wanted to be that bridge where our engagement fees, we do have them, but they're very minimal. Uh, They're a small percentage of the upside, um, you know, call, call it the upside uh, reward that we want to make with you guys, you know, selling the company. Um, but we're going to put you through a process that is identical or even better. It really is. I mean, our, our Sims, our Sims are uh, modeled after the Fortune 500 work that my, my three partners have done in their past, you know, for investment banking transactions. And so it's going to be a process that's highly sophisticated, but yeah, it's not going to, you know, we, we want to dispel that. Hey, listen, <laughs> there is there is a process like that and it is very expensive. But, you know, working with us, we're not going to make you take out a second mortgage to work with us, you know, but you're going to get a great outcome. Yeah. And, and you're my, the, the, my perspective on it is like if I pay the basic run the mill, you know, local broker. There's not that much incentive. Like, yeah, there's upside, sure. Or I might pay like a flat fee depending on the person. But there's a difference between running that kind of transaction and an actual prop, right? Like, is that the, I forget if that's the term typically used, is like it's running a process, right? Yeah, basically. Yeah, that's, that's running a process, running a deal, running a transaction, um, you know, going through the process. There's, there is a difference. I mean, I mean, there's a clear distinction between everything you and I just talked about having real conversations and multiple conversations with, um, you know, with a, uh, with a portfolio or a fund manager, um, you know, with a family office uh, uh, head with, uh, you know, someone whose background has been at, you know, KKR and Bain and Goldman Sachs and and some of the larger firms. Um, but, you know, aside from just that and kind of conversations you have and how you position the company over the telephone or face-to-face meetings, you know, it's about putting together the real opportunity for the business instead of just listing things like, ah, they can go to Walmart Canada. It's like, no, what does that mean? What's a, what's a three-year business plan for this company to really start modeling out where the opportunity is and how someone can come in and really grow this business pretty much starting day one. But then being able to articulate and speak very intelligently to all of the data about the company, that takes three to four weeks of prep work on our end. We have to understand the business from, you know, if if you engaged with us tomorrow, you and I and our team, we're going to be spending about three to four weeks together. We're going to do a massive deep dive into your company and we're going to take all these data parts and then we're going to put them together in this Picasso painting. <laughs> <laughs> right. All these parts. And then we're going to apply real creative to it and real marketing to it, um, put it into a book and a teaser. And we're going to go out there and we're going to 
it's a sales and marketing process. We're going to go out there and sell the deal. And then brokers really, they put you on the phone with everybody. You're really selling your own deal. They put you up on listings. Um, and they also, they also say they have got a buyer list and they do, they have an email list, but you know, take that with a grain of salt. (laughs) Take it with a grain of salt. That's right. Just, uh, you know, I'm on those lists. (laughs) Take it with a grain of salt. So, right, right. No, no, I totally get that. Um, and, and, and that's a lot of good points. I'm, I'm curious, what, what does that typically look like? Um, let me think of how to phrase this appropriately. So there's a difference between the people who come to you guys with a business that is tight, that is well-oiled and ready to go. And somebody who decides randomly, I don't want to be doing this anymore. I want to retire X, Y, and Z. And they're so far away from being able to be sold um, that you're like, we can't even engage you until like these things happen. <laughs> like you're just so not there. Um, you know, what are some, some major things that if somebody, cause I've always made the, the, the comments or statement should I more appropriately say that you should always build to sell, even if you never want to, because what you don't want to find yourself in, in, in a spot is, I realized tomorrow I do want to sell and nothing's ready to do so. Now I have a year's worth of work in front of me to make that possible. What, what are some of those things? Yeah. Oh, gosh. I think the, I think culprit number one, gremlin number one is just terrible, but, um, you know, financial organization, right? So, you know, they just don't understand their business. They don't understand their data. You know, when you ask them things like, hey, you know, what are your, what are your, what's your, you know, some terminology is SDE. What's your cash flow? You know, do you do you have a cash flow forecast? Do you have a cash flow statement? Do you have an income statement? Do you have a PL? Do you have a balance sheet? It's basic things. And I mean, if the answer is no to all those, I mean, you are so far away from being ready to go to market. You know, so that's kind of number one. And some folks come and they've got some of that, but you know, they're disorganized. They don't really understand where where the company is spending money. What's the real opex in the company, right? And so, um, you know, that's kind of number one. Number two, when you really start diving in and you start looking at certain certain metrics, you know, when you do have a low EBITDA percentage, you know, it's like, hey, man, let's just let me put this in most simplistic terms. If it, it, it's it's kind of like selling uh, widgets on Amazon in some ways, um, you know, it's like. Am I going to buy the one that's got five star reviews and twelve hundred five star reviews, and it might be a little bit more expensive, or am I going to buy the one with two star reviews? And that's kind of the way you look at net margin because there's a lot of freaking work that goes into buying a company that isn't that might be doing lots of revenue. We talked to somebody two years ago, and it was just so it was just it just stuck in my brain. He was doing like one hundred and ten million in top line, and I think barely making eight hundred thousand a year. Oh wow! It was a reseller. Yeah, we were like, well, well so if, if that's the case, that's normal. But like, you're not the the, the top line is irrelevant at this point. <laughs> and really, you know, the top line, the top line when you're doing private label, I think in just general, the top line isn't going to be the guiding metric unless it's showing flat or down. What you're looking at is everything under the hood. So kind of going back to if you have no financial organization, then there's no way to really understand it. But so diving in when you have low net margins, um, when you don't have very strong gross margins to begin with, you know, that's something when on the onset of starting your business, you know, when you're really looking at what's the white space and what's my opportunity to, to go sell a a widget, please start with a couple things in mind. One gross margin does matter. Um, and also 
how big is your package, right? How big is your packaging? And because, you know, we've spoken in, in to a lot of folks and we've looked at a lot of P&Ls where, you know, the, the, the P&L or the GL code for Amazon FBA costs is, is quite high. You know, you're running call 50 to 55%. And it's like, man, there's some work to be done here. So, you know, that's, that's, I'd say that's some of the minutia that we see. Some of it's marketing too, where it's like, Hey man, you're like, I talked to a guy the other day and I'm like, your top line, you know, he was too small for us, but that's the other, that's the other thing that at least our firm tries to do is be very educational, very altruistic. So if you called me and you know, you weren't a good fit for our process, I'm going to still spend time with you. I'm still going to look at your numbers and help basically. So I did, we went under the hood. I looked at all the different, you know, expenses. I talked to his accountant, you know, really got a good idea and picture of what's going on in the business. And one of the things that really stood out to me was he was doing like nine hundred nine hundred thousand dollars so far a year to date, and it was costing him like four four fifty to get that. And I'm like, oh, okay. And so you know, people talk in metrics like ROAS, people talk in metrics like ACOS or TACOS, etc. And these are all great metrics, and and but you really got to start applying, especially TACOS, applying that to the true kind of call it the full P and L. And a guy's going to take a look or guys or a firm or whatever. And they go, man, this is all, how, how am I? So talk to me about year three, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, so does this have great repeat purchase LTV? Because if that's the case and you're driving lots of consumer acquisition, because in year three, you know, my consumer acquisition costs are going to go like this, but yet my revenue is still going to stay like this. Okay. Let's model that out. That's actually a good business. But if you're telling me it's just one person buying and then never coming back again, you're just relying on you hope they just tell their friends. Oh, yeah, not good. <laughs> and, and to have a high capital requirement for just to run the business, because a lot of those businesses, they will sell you the business, but inventory is a different matter. Right. So it's not now it's like, OK, well, I'm buying the business from the perspective, financially speaking, that I am getting that equity or I'm sorry, that 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 inventory. But. I still have to go put up another six figures in, in inventory to keep That's running. Right. That's right. So, so at that point, the risk, capital the risk matters. Yeah, right. It, the risk doesn't make sense. So one, it's a very tight margin. Two, very capital intensive <laughs> versus, and consider this, like when you're deciding on what business to build, because guess what? SaaS is completely different. SaaS businesses have a higher average multiple because it's high LTV. I know it's, it's, it's repeatable, right? It's recurring revenue, right? So um, you have that. You have very high gross margins. They're very scalable. Awesome. Um, everything can pretty much be automated as much as possible. Well, your opex, um, your opex and SaaS is typically like standard rent, people, and cloud management. That's about it. And, and also any like marketing. It's funny the SaaS business we just sold. We almost laughed when we saw the line. They were only spending three percent to gross revenue in marketing. We were like. You guys understand the average is 30, right? <laughs> so what's funny is we do we do roughly we allocate roughly 15% to it right now. And that's only because we're in maintenance mode because we're in a, a, a big hiring phase right now. Um but but it's, yeah, it is very low. That's right. That's really low. We were like, well, we we highlighted it as opportunity to the to the family office. We're like, guys, this is a no-brainer. They're already doing this with this. Imagine if you went to this. You know, you're going to see some massive upside. So, yeah, I would say those are some of the bigger, I'd say, offenders that we see. And, 
And um, by the way, I've got about I got about three more minutes, and I gotta I gotta tap out. Um, but um, those are some of the bigger offenders we see. But you know, anybody listening right now, if they just want to reach out to us, and and you know, we're happy to do a deep dive. Um, and, uh, even if, even if their business doesn't necessarily fit our process per se, it doesn't matter. You know, we're, we're here to help and, and I'm, I'm glad, I'm happy to kind of walk someone through, call it business coaching, quote unquote, in terms of, Hey, this is what you need to do to get your company prepped. Awesome. So I got two things for you. And I just realized Jonathan has not spoken once. I told him beforehand, <laughs> I was going to geek out super hard. So Jonathan, I appreciate it, bro. <laughs> Nice. I love it. That's great. <laughs> so two things for you. One, um, purely selfish. And I'm glad you mentioned you guys just went through a process with the SaaS company. For, let's say, a $1 million plus ARR SaaS company, what kind of multiples are you guys seeing right now? Um, and two, you know, just because I know we're running out of time here, two, you know, where can people find out you know, more about your firm and, and get involved um, or, or contact you guys? I'll, I'll answer your first question first. Um, so multiple expansion really starts to happen around the 3 million ARR. Um, at about 1 million, you know, it's still based on revenue, but you're still squarely in that call it two to three. Um, you know, you just see suppression because you're not big enough just yet. Once you start hitting the three to four and we're looking at metrics going, okay, churn rate is low. Um, you know, uh, MRR percentages are extremely healthy, you know, obviously compounding themselves into a greater ARR. Um, yeah, you're going to start getting some, some decent, uh, you know, you're going to start getting some decent multiple expansion around that three to three and a half, four million mark. Okay. Um, now does that expand upwards of like a five to six kind of multiple? Cause I know yes, Publix yes. are trading right now, if I'm not mistaken, roughly nine, well, nine Publix. times. Public equities are so overbought right now. It's, it's uh, yeah. <laughs> I was running. I was running um, PE ratios and pegs on a few SaaS companies. I'm like, really? You're getting a 70x right now? That's insane. Amazon. Amazon. I think last we checked, and it's been a while, was running at a 72 to 75. Like, yeah, it's, it's, it's absolutely. It's just, public equities is insane right now. Right. So yeah, you're starting to kind of see the multiple expansion around that call three to four. Yeah, it it, it goes to. It also depends on the business too. Um, and how much, uh, you know, how attractive of a target are you going to be? Um, what's really cool is, so kind of, this is a good segue, uh, to find us globalwiredevisors.com, go to Google, you know, for 3% of your listeners who use Bing, you can go there too. Uh, just type in global wired advisors. We're number one that pops up, but we just actually, we're launching a new website tomorrow or Monday and we completely renovate our evaluation tool. Uh, we put a pretty decent SaaS component in there with lots of algorithmic math. So it's a lot of if this, then that type of components. So like we ask things like, are you SaaS? Yes. Do you have COGS? Yes. Then you go down another decision tree. No, a separate decision tree. And then we are actually, so we have it all modeled out in tiers based on your ARR, how long you've been in business, what's your concentration. There's a lot of metrics that go into it. So it won't be perfect or necessarily precise, but it will give you a valuation range. I think that will start to at least give you some good guidance on, on kind of where your company might trade. And of course we always say with our valuation tool devils in the details. So yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. You might, you might get a discount or a premium for a few other variables. So that's exactly right. So. <laughs> Usually how it works. Well, Chris, man, I appreciate you coming on. I've, I've really been looking forward to this um, since it's been on my calendar. I've not been able to talk shop on the finance side since I graduated 
because we went straight SaaS and I'm like, oh, I'm itching, man. It's good stuff. Well, so look, I, anytime, you. I know you've got a growing, thriving business. So anytime you want to take a temperature, um, you know, feel free to reach out to us. We're, we're happy. And honestly, if you just want to set some time to geek out on just kind of what's going on in the capital markets right now, very happy to take a phone call with you anytime you want. I appreciate that, Chris, man. Thanks, thank you for coming on. Seriously. Right, thank you. Thanks, man.